Hello and welcome to Hospitality News and Views. This is Raj Rundawa. Today I am joined by Michael McCartan, Chief Growth Officer at Atomize. Hello, Michael. Hi, Raj. Uh, thank you very much for having me today. Yeah, Michael, I was actually in your neck of the woods a few days ago at one of your local parks and um, I saw a black swan. And it made me start thinking about quite a few things to do with analytics. And the reason for that was because back about 20 years ago, there was a book called The Black Swan by Nassim Taleb, which was about the, the possibility of improbables happening. He was using this as a, as a theory to sort of second-guess markets, and he actually managed to sort of second-guess. He, he almost predicted some of the crashes that happened in the 2000s. So it's quite a, no, it's a clever idea. But as I started to think about it, he called it The Black Swan because The Black Swan, we knew it existed, but what were the chances of actually finding it? And at that time, I was looking at the numbers. In the UK, there were only 20 breeding pairs of black swan. Today, 20 years on, there's 120. So it's no longer seen as a bird that might be that's on the verge of extinction. Strangely, though, in New Zealand, it's common. <laughs> so, so it's really one of these sort of strange things about the black swan. And as I started to think about it, I started to reflect on a couple of stories. One of them was SiteMind that had come out with a statement regarding the improvement in occupancy and in revenues in Los Angeles. And what they said was, yeah, things are improving, which is good. You now we're coming out of the pandemic. It's good that they're improving. But then they sort of, fin- they, they said it's all to do with, it was like staycations was the thing. And as I started to think about it, I thought it's rather obvious because it's been literally closed off from the rest of the world. What else could it be? Okay. And at the same time, a number of magazines, actually hotel, hotelier magazines, published data for August this year, 2021, in which they said we've had very strong occupancy and profits are really good. And they were comparing to March 2021, which is when the pandemic was, in some respects, at its height where every hotel was closed. So as I was starting to think about this stuff, I remember there was a line in a, a film in which uh, a character says, water is wet, tell me something I don't know. And this really seems to fall into that bracket. Yes, you've got all this analysis, but it's just telling you things that actually common sense says. You, you, you should have to be told this, <laughs> this is common sense. So your company, obviously, Atomize, do a lot of work on AI and, uh, and, and in analytics. Our company does as well. And I was really thinking about what does this mean in terms of analytics? You know, if people are saying, wow, it's wonderful if we're saying things that are really, really common sense side of things, you know, what should they be looking at? How, how should the analytics be, in some respects, authenticated that it's doing a good job? Because if it's simply saying the obvious, one could argue that that actually that is, what is the purpose of the analytics. So really, it's, it really comes down to you know, how do we almost really gauge, is the analytics doing its job? And in some respects, one could argue that that's also an important feature of even having to talk about analytics, because how do you then differentiate yourself from those people who are just stating the obvious? So I just thought, you know, I thought to get, get your thoughts on that particular topic. Yeah, so it's interesting in, in the predictive analytics space, which is where Atomize operates in. So we're, we're not analyzing data retrospectively. We're analyzing data in real time and trying to predict uh, demand for future dates. And one of the things that happened during the pandemic was people immediately said, history has no relevance. You know, uh, revenue management um, going back over over the past decades or so essentially looked at historical patterns and tried to determine, um, use those patterns to determine future demand. And and because of the pandemic and the unpredictability and the uncertainty of the, the pandemic and, and the demand patterns as a result, they, you know, the the common assumption was history has no no relevance, and to a large extent that was true, but it wasn't entirely true because even during the pandemic there were some days that looked like days in the past. A typical Tuesday during the pandemic may have looked like a typical Tuesday in 2019. So to throw the baby out with the bathwater was the the wrong approach. Um, at Atomize we. We dynamically balance um, the historical data with current data. That's the the pickup and the pace of a hotel. Um, so in terms of actual production that they're seeing, but also 
further supplement that with forward-looking data, data that is giving indications of future demand that is anticipated, but it hasn't yet booked hotel rooms. And then we look at search pressure data on websites, uh, airline traffic, and, and things like that. And we don't fix a certain percentage or weightage to any one of those three data sets. We dynamically incorporate the data based on what we can see. So on one particular day, history might have 100% relevance where the patterns or that future demand mirrors uh, a day in the past and we will the algorithm will detect that. On another day, uh, historical data may have very little relevance and we'll then shift the focus more to the current and the future looking data. So I think it's, yeah, as you said, I think it, it's easy to jump to assumptions, assume that history has no relevance and that all revenue management capabilities and um, demand modeling is going to be based on forward-looking data, but that's not true. I think uh, history still has has a, play, a role to play. The success or the secret is really to determine which data set is most relevant and which one to apply to a particular scenario. Yeah. I mean, one of the things is actually looking, when you look backwards, and this is my own experience, so doing the things that we do, whether it's forward control or looking at competitor analytics, it's actually putting the data into context because it is so easy to look at the past and think, oh my God, it was terrible. But you forget that actually there were other events that made it terrible or it was incredible. And you think, wow, what a great marketing exercise. And actually you did nothing. And I, one of the things that comes to mind, I don't know if you remember when the uh, volcano erupted over Iceland and Heathrow Airport basically was brown to a standstill, as were many airports. Everybody had to stay at the hotels. Where else were the tourists going to go? They couldn't go back. And our data was fantastic. But actually, marketing had done nothing. <laughs> it was just a, it was just a consequence of the what happened at that time with the ash cloud. And I think that sometimes when we look at numbers, without that context, we can very, very quickly assume things that if you just have a conversation piece, straight away, you remember those events because they were so big but we don't represent them within the analytics because it's almost like we've gone past that date now. Whoever updates anything that we've gone past. Yeah, and I think that's where, where predictive analytics allows you to validate that in, in real time or close to real time. You make an assumption based on the, the, the data and the context that you're seeing. So let's say a hotel is seeing strong pickup and the assumption is that there's strong demand and therefore you can increase price. You sort of do your price sensitivity calculations and, and as a result of that increased price, you expect certain outcomes. But because you're doing it in real time, or certainly at, you know, a company like Atomize is doing it in real time, you can validate the, the, those assumptions and, and readjust. So if the resultant pickup isn't as expected, so you saw a surge of bookings, assumed that there was higher demand than normal, pushed the price up, and then didn't see the, 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 the results of, of, you know, the, the continued pickup, then, then the algorithm will reevaluate and, and re, reassess the, the market demand and, and adjust prices accordingly. So it, it is, you have to not only sort of take the context into consideration, but you also need to validate the assumptions that you make as quickly as you can, as, as possible. And one of the good things about taking that approach is that one could argue technically, you can compare yourself against your prediction as opposed to your historical um, assessment. So uh, therefore, as you're predicting, one would think you're actually taking into account some of the context around what's happening. And therefore, maybe it's less of an issue, whereas those people who are just going by pure numbers based on pace reports, et cetera, from the past, they, there it's just pure numbers. There's no, there's, you know, there's no context. And in some respects, one can argue those numbers get distorted because there's no context. Yeah, that's right. And we often, one of the most common questions I get about from people evaluating whether they, they should deploy an RMS or, or not is what's your forecast accuracy? And that in itself is a, a sort of a, 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 a nonsensical question in many respects because if you, if your forecast on, on, let's say 60 days out, you're forecasting something that happens and an event happens like the volcano, you clearly that's going to affect your forecast accuracy because new information has been introduced. A new situation has been introduced. So whatever you were forecasting prior to that event taking place is no longer relevant. So you have to reassess it. So at, you know, at the end of the month, you, 
comparing your 60-day forecast or your 30-day forecast to the actual to the, to what was actually produced can be very misleading because it could mean that you if you if you aim to hit your forecast you could be leaving a lot of opportunity on the table not capitalizing on that and and likely if if you you know the, the reverse is true so our our answer to that is we we have to model in real time and assuming that all of the recommendations were accepted assuming that there were no unusual events that occurred between us making that initial forecast and the the the, the end date then you can evaluate how accurate our forecasting was but the reality is things will always happen within between now and day of arrival especially when you're looking at 60 or 30 days out and and you shouldn't you shouldn't use that as a determinant of whether the system is performing well or not in fact arguably if if it exceeds forecast and, and captures all of the opportunities that arise as you know just b- between now and 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 day of arrival then then it's doing its job it's not the forecast accuracy that is the be all and end all yeah i suppose one could argue i mean the most important thing that people i i, I personally feel that people forget is this concept of you're leaving money on the table because it's hard to gauge that even happens when things move so quickly and unless you're predicting you don't know what that that you have that that's even occurred because you've been to go in the back when you go back it's so easy to find excuse as to why you did so well even though you may not have done well yeah ex- exactly and it you know and, and even even just by accepting or not accepting a rate can influence the outcome mm. and if a rate is not accept- a recommendation is not accepted that immediately invalidates that forecast that you've just made and and yeah. so it's a very you know forecast accuracy is a very complex thing and and as i said not really a true gauge of whether a system is performing optimally or not uh, you know you've really got to compare yourself to the market and how you you did relative to your your comset and 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 the market in in general you know did you did your hotel perform better than what you would consider your concept and the market in general. I mean, going back to my black swan example. So if this book was now written today, where the black swan is now not as, uh, it is no longer on the potential uh, you know, extinction list, you'd assume the author would choose another animal. So if I do that as an example, as you're predicting, one could argue that your concept needs to change because those concepts tend, personally, I tend to think they don't change. Too many people just, whatever they set up 10 years ago, is still the same concept. So actually working out, is your concept even the right concept? Technically, one could argue that, that that is part of the predictive elements of actually saying, well, are these making sense? Yes. Yeah, and more and more we started to see um, sort of dynamic concept uh, concepts coming. Yeah, I think uh, companies like OTA Insight are now starting to explore that further and look at the whole market and really try and hone in and understand. You know, because your concepts change day of week, season, things like that. You know, business versus leisure. You 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 have a variety of concepts, and and they've got lots and lots of data now to start determining who your real concepts are. And, and we can see that as well. We can, we can start seeing which hotels actually take business away from you if they drop their prices and which ones don't. You know, they, just because the hotel is located next door to you doesn't mean that they're a true competitor. Your competition matters. You know, I think that's self-evident. If, if I have a choice between booking this hotel or that hotel and everything else is equal except the price, it clearly the price will have a, a, an effect on my decision. And But it, it requires much deeper analysis than just a sort of a hypothesis like the one I've just stated. So, yeah, analyzing the data and really determining who your true com- competitors are at different days of weeks, different seasons, things like that is, is really important. But the, And the information is getting better. It's improving. Yeah. I take it that like us, you're look, also looking at not just pure numbers, you're looking at other sources like the reviews, et cetera, et cetera. There's lots of data out there now. One of the things that I'm seeing, and I'm not, I mean, I'm just telling you a NAFQuest view of this, and that is that reviews, it's almost as though they're not as important as they used to be in the past. I was looking at this last year and the argument was being made that one of the problems were that because people weren't traveling, Reviews had become out of date, 
And therefore, people just said, wait, the review is more than a month old or more than a few weeks old. Just ignore it. However, a lot of the reviews are driving the, the um, customer satisfaction and the customer rating of the hotel. So you can then argue that the rating is, is actually out of date, as well as the reviews being out of date. And also, the other thing is that I've noticed is that a lot of hotels is a very small marginal difference in the ratings when you look at the concepts. The all, if, the, if one's 8.2, all the concepts are around 8.2. If they're, if they're 9.4, your concepts are all between 9 and 9.6. So it's almost as though the reviews that I'm seeing, and I'm only seeing it from my perspective, is that maybe people aren't actually pitching those reviews, aren't using those reviews in the way that people think. And I'm just wondering, are we in a situation where the reviews are just being used to actually, by the search engines, to, to help? show what should come at the top but actually yeah. from a pricing and boat and, and it's from a perspective of actually making a choice if you see it at the top you'll choose it purely because it's at the top yeah i i think my personal view is reviews matter i i, I certainly do check reviews of hotels and and try and validate my decision i think it i don't base my decision on the views but once i've chosen a hotel i then use the reviews to satisfy myself that I've actually, that, that this, this stay will actually meet my expectations. You know, yeah, from a pricing perspective, uh, I don't think reviews, you, you know, reviews aren't going to affect daily pricing. I think it, it, uh, it'll, it'll determine your position in the market over a much longer period of time. And, and if you, you do, you know, if your reviews are low and your score ratings are low and, and, and you're starting to suffer, then you, you'll struggle to drive the same sort of price that your, your, your competitors are if they have more stable and, 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 and higher, higher ratings. So it, it does matter. I think the correlation between reviews and pricing is, 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 is a difficult thing to determine. And, you know, lots of analysis has been done on that, but, but, and, yeah. Essentially, I think it, it does matter and, and hotels should be striving to keep, you know, ensure that they've got good ratings and good reviews on, on their sites. Yeah. Yeah, that's quite strange. That's good because I actually uh, was reading an article a few months back. I remember it was basically one of the issues, as we've been talking about, is that how do you measure things if you're using historical data? You have to be very careful about how you use these things now. And I know that I think it was STR was saying people should compare to 2019 and just to pretend 2020 didn't exist, which is actually a hard ask when you think about how good 2019 was. I mean, it was a boom year for hospitality from where I'm sitting anyway. But one of the things that was in this article, there were, I think it was about 20 different types of metric. And they had done a survey in which they had actually asked, I think it was around four or 500 CEOs of, of hotels, general managers and CEOs, what the most important metrics were and to rate these 20. And across the board, the number one uh, metric was reputation. That was the number one metric. And it's the number one metric that's really hard to evaluate. <laughs> <laughs> of all the other metrics, ADR, this, that, whatever, it's the one metric that is really, really hard to find an answer for. What is your reputation like? And it's such a contextual thing. So, in terms of these reviews and in terms of how people look at these, I can understand negative reviews having a significant impact that I can understand. In fact, I'm not too sure if you're aware, but some of the problems that have happened this year, it's been reported with a number of hotels, is where people are actually putting negative reviews against the hotel. And then they find out it's the wrong hotel. <laughs> and trying to get the review removed is really hard. It's not an easy thing to do. So obviously negative reviews, everyone's wary of, and we know that. However, the review process itself, I'm not too sure if it actually is going mean, to, I agree with what you're saying, it's an important metric, but how you evaluate it, how you yeah. truly evaluate it is actually quite a difficult thing. No, I agree. And uh, one thing I would say, though, that we are seeing, you know, during, during uh, so the staycation boom, uh, not just in the UK, but across the board, where, where hotels could start charging ridiculous amounts of money and, you know, in some cases didn't have their moral yeah. <laughs> ceiling and they, you know, they said, we'll fleece them, you know, the, the, the punter for all, all they're worth. That's backfired in, in many respects because the, even though they could command that price at the time of booking, 
the, the guests' expectations, having paid that price, was that this is going to be a really, really good experience. And the reality is that hotel couldn't deliver on that. So, yeah, uh, you know, you got re- reviews matter, and and meeting customers' expectations matters. And yeah, but I agree, really hard to really hard to measure and evaluate. And uh, you know, yeah, I yeah. that as a, as a in as fact, a one of the things what you make a really good point there about the spiking of prices. There was even a case recently in Glasgow where I think Airbnb removed some people because they had like increased their prices by you know, three, four hundred percent because they knew that they, you couldn't find a, a house in, in the area during the COP um, uh, oh, yeah, event. Yeah. Okay. So, but it's actually, but this is also something that's happened in other industries as well. During the pandemic, it seemed like almost for a week, all we could hear about were toilet rolls. You can't buy toilet rolls. And then next time it was something else and something else and something else. And there was a um, one of my uh, friends in Croydon in southwest London, in South London. She was saying that there was a shop near her that literally was stiffing everybody. It was literally that everybody walking into that shop was getting fleeced because they had no choice. It was the only shop in the area that had those goods. But then when things came back to normal, everybody stopped going there. Boycotted it. Yeah. yeah they literally boycotted it and they didn't want to go near there. And that guy has really suffered as a result. And I think that there's plenty of evidence even in the past where you shouldn't you know no one should try to do that if you care about your reputation yeah and it's a it's it's offering a fair price you know people will remember and i think that's the thing if you can't you know i'm in the business of of driving higher adrs and higher rev power for hotels but it has to be within the 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 remit of what the hotel can deliver uh in terms of, of value as soon as they push the price beyond what they can Beyond the the customer's expectation in terms of services they get once they they stay there, then then they're entering into dangerous dangerous territory. Some some PMSs now and channel managers over the last few years they've been sending out a a, a notification to RMS systems and to, even to OTAs regarding the last sale of a, the last unit of a particular unit type. So if it's the last bedroom you have for a particular day. They're giving that highlight, and it's almost like breeding this kind of idea that it's okay to then just push that price up because it's the last unit on that day. It's almost as I'm just thinking maybe people are becoming aware of that now, and that actually that actually starts to count against you because people can see a sudden. You know, we, we look today at the price in the morning, and all of a sudden in the evening they see it's like almost doubled or gone up by quite a significant amount. And, yeah. they, and that itself stops them from actually looking at you again. And I'm just wondering with analytics that you do, do you actually recognize PMSs that on systems that are trying to do that? Well, we, what we're trying to do is really build a nice sort of typical pickup curve where you, you, you build a, a base of business early on. Um, and then you slowly, in, you know, increase your price as, as pickup increases, as demand increases today of arrival. So, Yes, I mean the prices do. If, if you look at a, a uh, one of our typical pricing charts, w- you will see a lowish price to begin with to build that base of business, and it will increase quite significantly during the active booking window as as the the system determines that there's demand there. But we try and dampen the the, the price increases so that you're not seeing sort of really sharp sharp spikes in prices. That it is acceptable from a consumer perspective and it doesn't not going to cause the hotel any any reputational damage because you know yesterday or 12 hours ago the price was 100 pounds and now it's 200 pounds you know that i mean and that that may happen if there's a a significant event an ed sheeran concert or something like that and there really is unprecedented demand in the city and then maybe there's justification for charging those sorts of prices within as we said within the re, you know, within reason and and within the bounds of being able to deliver a satisfactory service for the for the guests. What we what we try and avoid, and what you know, revenue management just in general is trying to avoid is dropping prices within that active booking window. You know, that's that is that is a real risk and a real danger because then you just see a lot of uh, cancel rebooks uh, for on the flexible rates, and th- that happened. Um, quite a lot, uh, sort of pre pre the pandemic, uh, and I think with with more automation and with more hotels adopting 
uh, pricing algorithms, I think we'll see less of that um, because machines aren't, aren't emotional and they won't they won't just sort of react sort of have knee jerk reactions to 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 situations. It'll it'll be more balanced and I think the, the more more hotels that use technology and use predictive analytics to to help with pricing, I think we'll. There'll probably be less volatility. Well, my prediction is there'll be less volatility in the market, and prices will be more reasonable across the board. I was in a meeting yesterday, and one of the things being discussed was the fact that the booking window had actually got shorter. And this was um, throughout the pandemic. We've we've seen that with hotels, and one of the things that was being discussed was the fact that we're still seeing it. Yeah. So technically, one could argue we're no longer in the pandemic situation. Technically, there's, and obviously, it's changed today. We're seeing news in Europe where they're going to start doing lockdowns. But outside of those areas, people are very much getting back to some level of normality. But the actual booking window has it hasn't extended. So, with just and and we're talking in a, a very short window, almost a week or less than a week. So less than that, I think. Yeah. I can, it's really in the last three days that uh, yeah. most of the bookings are coming through. But but I can understand that because even though we're sort of, you know, technically exiting the pandemic, there's still a lot of uncertainty and pe- it, people were stung during the, before and during the pandemic when, when they didn't, you know, didn't get refunds and whatnot. And, and I think they, they are very cautious now. They're saying, I, I want to be absolutely certain that this trip is going to go ahead. That that I'm not not going to get you know ha- have to struggle to get get refunds and, and wh- whatever, and so they're leaving it to the last minute. And and in general, you know, other than maybe some of those hotspots during in in those leisure destinations, there is availability there. So I don't think you know the scarcity of of inventory is not a problem. So that the consumer is saying I I can leave it to the last minute. Um, but but I but I can definitely see you know as I said we're seeing. Sh- Sharper increases in prices during that active booking window. So, yeah, um, you know, the, the 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 consumer is is paying for making those last minute decisions. So, even in a three day window, you're seeing the price on a Monday steadily increase up till the Wednesday when the booking is made. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, that, that's that's when we, you know, just it, it'll vary by market to market and hotel to hotel. But I, I, I'd say as a general rule that that's what we're seeing you know the last last three days is seeing um the the, the biggest increases progressively of the yeah. price so that would imply in some respects that you've got to set your price at the on that monday it's got to be set at a sensible level otherwise it might be too low otherwise the change will be too high and people might think you're trying to uh, spike the pricing yeah yeah I, I, and and the, the, that's a perfect um, argument for for automation. You know, yeah. the using science and and data to to come up uh, um, with with the right price, the optimal price. It's validating that price in the market, and and then it's in driving pushing the price higher as 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 demand increases. And yeah, I, you know, in, in some cases, I said that you'll you'll see a little bit of volatility during that active booking window. But in general, the direction of travel is. You know the price goes up, and 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 hotels are not having to drop their price at the last minute, like we were seeing, uh, we've we've seen in the past. That's right. And the consumer actually learned. Uh, let, let's let's book book a hotel in advance, um, and and then three days before arrival, let's let's look again, not not at just the hotel I've booked at, but in the market, and uh, see what you know if there are any deals to be done, and uh, cancel rebook, and and that happened. A lot. I think OTA Insight did some analysis a few years ago, and in New York, and they they saw uh, something like you know it was a staggering about ninety percent of hotels were dropping their prices uh, with three days before arrival. So, and consumers learned that. And I suppose a, a good thing is now uh, coming from the pandemic is is less of that is happening. You know, yeah. prices are start, starting lower, encouraging consumers to book earlier. Um, but but without the onerous constraints. So if they if they if they do want to cancel, they can. But they they're not going to get the bargains that they did previously in the in the last three or four days. Yeah, and if they and I suppose that part of that's also what we're seeing. We're seeing that as well. 
And one of the things that we're also seeing is that in order to reduce the cancellations, having some kind of hurdle, so whether it's taking a small payment of one night or whatever, just taking something produces a, a level of resistance to, to, to stop to wanting to then cancel. Yes. And that, yeah. this, that, that kind of helps to ensure that at least you're protecting the hotel from that cancellation. You're protecting the hotel, but you're also protecting the consumer who's make, you know, decided to book early. And you're actually rewarding them. You genuinely are rewarding them for booking earlier. They're getting a cheaper price and they're not, and they're not going to get undercut yeah. in the last few days of, of uh, before arrival, which, we, you know, for anyone who's paid up front, that, that's pretty galling. Right? So, yes, so exactly. in general, that's, you know, that, that, this trend of, lower prices to be, uh, building up the price as you get closer to day of arrival is, is a positive one yeah uh, and it, and it, and it just through automation you, you 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 just get better results yeah i i i fully endorse that one of the things that i'm seeing and there's lots of people are talking about the need for data hotels are it's sometimes it's almost like it's not just in hospitality in all industry everybody says we need data no one quite knows what they're going to do with the data and a few years ago i was at a um a ceo uh ceo magazine had a um uh a debate i think it was a brown's hotel they had 20 or 30 ceos there and everybody was saying we need data we're going to store data we're going to have lots of data and i was sitting next to a guy he was the IT director for a company that produces ejector seats for the RAF. Yeah. And I was sitting next to him and he goes, the only people who want this are the people who are selling this space. <laughs> 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 so because he, he, knew, he, like a lot of people, understood if you've got lots and lots of data, what do you do with it? How, you know, yeah. When do you ever get around to analyzing it? So with all this call for new data, it does kind of make me wonder, what sort? What sources are people expecting to get data from, and how are they going to actually use it? Because there are lots of new sources. A few weeks ago, in one of the IT magazines, there was a interesting stat that was actually produced. There was a survey done in the UK of the outfits that are actually moving towards e-commerce. So all the companies across all industries that were trying to move their business now to an e-commerce environment. And over 50% of them, I think it was 56% of them, were using screen scraping as an additional form of data to understand what's happening in the market. Okay. So obviously, people are actually seeing information. And I suppose part of it is saying, well, if I knew that before, I would have made a different decision back then. Yeah. So from an analytics perspective, that you obviously you're having to look at lots of forms of data. We are too. Are you finding that the data sources are opening up but is the value uh, are you then trying are you finding yes it's all valuable or are they opening up and you then have the query well is it actually valuable or not because it's you know just data for the sake of data yeah we we, we have to evaluate very carefully we we, we spend a lot of time evaluating which data sets are relevant and and are very conscious of just more data doesn't mean better results. Uh, it's got to be relevant and it's got to have a practical application, um, to, to determining forecasting the demand. If it, if it doesn't, then, then we, we don't use it. Um, so probably, well, I, I don't know the exact percentage, but a significant amount of our engineering time is spent evaluating alternative data sets because clearly there is a, you know, the more insights that we can gain into the future, the better we can be at predicting outcomes. But we need to be sure that we're not corrupting our predictions by in ingesting data sources that are not relevant or we haven't fully understood how they affect demand. You know, you, you spoke about reputation beforehand. You know, we are looking at reputation data to see if, if uh, what influence that has on, on price and on demand. But we we haven't come to any conclusions yet, and therefore we're not we're not using it because it would be dangerous to do so, not understanding how you know what the, what the potential outcomes would be from ingesting that data. Yeah, and and we're finding the same things. I mean, the reality. I mean, we're doing you know, obviously a lot of fraud control, a fraud uh, testing for fraud, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you have to be incredibly careful with any assumptions you make. And what we're what I'm seeing is that because people people are changing their 
I suppose the pro the, the actual if, if one thinks about the booking process and you think about actually the process people go through in trying to uh, decide something, that is actually changing. And you know when we're predicting things, we're actually trying to also predict the th those processes and how people are aligning themselves to a particular price before they buy that buy into that price. So those the nuances around that for want of a better word, even the grey areas, become particularly sensitive to things that come in out of the blue. Or the worst thing is where you get data, and this is my own experience, where you get data coming in and all of a sudden it's, it changes in a format that you just don't expect it to be working or it might end up being blank. might end up being, you know, the known becomes an unknown and it actually, because it's not consistent, it can suddenly end up, Affecting you, and one of the problems with a lot of predictive elements that I see is that sometimes you only realise it's wrong after it's run for quite some time in the real world. And then people come back and complain. So you have to be so sensitive to the fact that that can happen, and therefore that whole role of just accepting data from everywhere. You you got to be quite negative in some respects, and pessimistic about its value. So you force it to prove its value. Yeah, the rule of thumb is say no until you've kind of proven its value for sure. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, otherwise you just get overwhelmed in a sea of meaningless data, and yeah, and, yeah the outcomes could be horribly affected. Yeah, one of the things that um, I've noticed is that the demands for data tend to come to pe come from people who, on a day to day basis, tend to work in Excel. So as a result, they they're familiar with data, they like it, you know, they can do lots of things. So within hospitality, the roles that I tend to think of are people who, who request this sort of information tend to be the revenue managers. So now that we're getting more automation, now that we're building systems that people can have faith in, which is the way I tend to like to think of it, you know, before systems weren't as reliable, we know they weren't as reliable. Now they are a lot more reliable, a lot more trustworthy in what they're going to do and so on. The role of the revenue manager how do you think that's going to change um, uh, as we move forward? Yeah, so I, I see revenue management as as two parts, really. I think you have the tactical pricing element, and that's something that Atomize does. We literally, you, we determine second by second, day by day, well, hour by hour, day by day, whether I charge £130 or £132 for a particular room on a particular day, and that's been constantly evaluated. That sort of stuff has been done by revenue managers beforehand, and it took them an inordinate amount of time to collate the data, to clean the data, and then make a decision. Quite frankly, on something that was, you know, literally whether I charge two pounds more than I'm charging today, which, you know, considering the amount of time that they spent was, was a, you know, not the best use of their time, not the best use of their capabilities. So that tactical pricing element, is very well suited to automation, provided you you know have access to the right data. This the second part of revenue management is what I'll call strategic analysis, and that's where you are doing multi-dimensional analysis on the market on your business to really understand where your guests are coming from, what their profile is, what their likes and dislikes are, how you're going to attract more and convert more of that that business. And there are business intelligence applications. We're not one of them. We don't do business intelligence, but they're business ap intelligence applications that will, again, bring a lot of that data together from a variety of sources and allow the revenue managers and, and indeed broader commercial teams to really understand more about their business and then uh, design programs, whether it's marketing or promotional activity or distribution activities or whatever around attracting more of that business and, and converting more of that business. So, uh, yeah, I think the role of the revenue management is going to become much more strategic. They're going to do less of the day-to-day -day data collation, uh, more strategic in nature and more collaborative. They, you know, arguably they, they won't just be, they won't be called revenue managers anymore. I think they're going to, you know, they'll, they'll become sort of broader commercial specialists within a broader commercial team and, and uh, their, their roles will become much more aligned to marketing, distribution, sales, uh, and, and sort of general operations. Yeah, I, mean, I agree with that. When I think about other industries, you know, because 
every industry has somebody doing the role of a revenue management. I don't know of any industry that doesn't do that. Certainly every industry that I've ever worked in has had, they have a different job title, but essentially they're, they're doing a similar thing. And when I think about manufacturing, they're, and just as manufacturing as an example just popped into my head, actually, there it was actually, you understand the products, i.e. a one bed is a product, yes. a two bed is a product, a two bed with a balcony is a, product, a separate product. You know, all these little nuances, they're all products. But then it comes down to, well, how do you actually either reinvent that? How do you understand what else is going on in the world? And all of that kind of stuff falls into almost product development and product management. And that's where I think revenue managers are going to move towards. I, I agree with your concept about strategy, because it is about strategy. But when I think about the work I've done in the past in other industries, the people who have aligned themselves like that have ended up working quite closely in measuring not just what the hotel is doing, not just working with the CEOs in terms of are we meeting our expectations, but helping the board members understand are they meeting the expectations of their investors. Yeah. It, it moves it moves very much along that line because those skills are actually quite complex. Yes. You know? And but it's nothing to do with working out, it's moving significantly away from it's $32 a night here, please. It's a very, very different type of role. But I think in some respects, one could argue it's actually a, a role that is bigger and potentially more rewarding purely because you're taking a bigger view of the actual hotel itself. Yeah, I agree. It, it, it's, it'll be, you know, there's nothing rewarding about um, spending days doing menial data collection and data cleansing. And, 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 and then by the time you've come up with the, the results, the market shifted, you know, things have happened and, and the analysis that you've done is, is irrelevant. Uh, you're absolutely right. The, the roles are going to become more valuable, more fulfilling, and and I think we'll see a lot more of what you know those people that were previously doing tactical pricing actually becoming much more valuable members of these broader holistic commercial teams. Mm. I think fundamentally, though, in order to achieve these what are called lean commercial teams or lean op- lean commercial operations, you you need a integrated ecosystem of technology to take care of all of the um, those repetitive and manual tasks you know if, if you can it, it's what what happened in the past is you you had specialist applications des- designed for specialist users based on the siloed approach to to hotel management so the revenue management tools of the past were very very complex in in, in their usability because they were designed for people that understood a very that, that very detailed complex role of, of revenue management and the same was true of your, your digital marketing teams your, your 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 people involved in loyalty or crm or whatever the case may be so you had all of these specialist tools designed for specialist users are we moving away from that now because as the roles become more generic and more strategic in nature organizations don't have the the means nor the desire to have individuals controlling aspects of their business. They have to open, you know, explode those applications and make them much more accessible to broader, broader teams. And, and in order to do so, those teams need to become more integrated. The engines driving these, these more important commercial decisions that allow for, for cross, cross team collaboration. So yeah, there's a, there's a technology shift and there's a organizational shift that's sort of occurring at the same time that is really entirely there yet but but we're already seeing some some organizations migrate towards this where they truly breaking down silos and and not relying on specialist users to drive these more complex applications yeah it's quite interesting because one of the things i was just thinking about there was i used to work for a company that was is a big manufacturing company had about 100 factories in the uk and I was there when they decided, one of the divisions decided to actually implement a new method of working that had been trialed in Sweden. And the idea was, on a, manuf- on a complex manufacturing environment, the idea was that actually you didn't just have a simple production line, 
what you would do is you'd have people who were in teams and you'd rotate and they would each rotate within the team you'd rotate it to do each other's jobs and then the teams then learned the other team's jobs so to keep the interest level up and to keep the understanding of how important your role is in that manufacturing process the idea was that it would aid in all of that yeah. and one could argue it's almost like democratizing the actual production values to such a point that everybody has a stake in making sure that what comes off that production line is good okay and it, it sounds very much like that you could argue that's what's going to be happening as the systems come along and they become more accessible people understand not just what they're doing but what other people are doing and that gives them a better understanding of where they sit in that decision making process and how the outcomes are reflective of their work yeah exactly you know citizen m for example they, they took that approach for their front of you know the guest facing staff at at hotels they, no one was there wasn't you know a front desk manager or a, a concierge or whatever everyone could do everything and you rotated it and, and those those roles and if if someone needed a coffee anyone in 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 the hotel uh foyer could could serve a coffee you know anyone could help with a check in and and it made the jobs interesting and it it made those people feel valued and appreciated and i think we'll start seeing more of that in in the, the back of house operations where you become more more hybrid in nature but also more strategic in nature uh, so i think you're right i think that that's a great example of 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 where it's migrating to there's one other example i'm going to throw at you it's not less example sort of a question so where hotels have revenue managers yes i think we were agreed that the roles are going to change i think they'll become more better roles really in many respects certainly there'll be by and by better what i mean is the the recognition will be there because they're doing more of a strategic role and it will be seen to be uh, a very very valuable role where hotels don't have revenue managers and there's a lot of hotels out there that don't do you think the systems coming in will actually help those hotels i would argue remain lean and mean yeah because that because the reason they haven't got these certain roles is cuz they want to keep their staff down they want to keep on top of their costs etc and there's a very there tends to be a very much lean and mean type view of how to run that you know that particular um organization or that particular property etc i i can see that absolutely you know, the the advancement in technology and if you just look at revenue management the advancements that have, have happened in the last Three or four years have allowed hotels that didn't previously have a revenue department to actually compete with hotels that have invested and in, in employed large teams of, of of revenue managers. That's not to say, as, as we just discussed, that those you know, existing revenue managers are, are now redundant. But but it it there will be fewer of them. I think that there's just been natural attrition through uh, during the pandemic with people being furloughed and. people looking for alternative employment so i don't think we're going to see the same size revenue management teams as we have in the past so even the hotels that pre- you know have had taken a sophisticated and organized approach to revenue management are, are definitely downsizing and streamlining the, that those departments making them leaner and those com- organizations that decided not to have a dedicated revenue management team are now using technology to 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 actually uh, compete with those hotels and compete effectively with those hotels that 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 did have revenue management teams so yeah it's 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 there's there's definitely becoming a sort of a, a, a trend towards leaner hybrid cross functional commercial teams of which revenue management is a part and it's allowing lean teams or teams that were always lean to now compete more effectively and it's allowing hotels that that had bigger more clunky organizations and more sophisticated teams to actually streamline those and again make the people that are left behind providing them with more interesting and valuable jobs and and making them feel more worthwhile and and doing more interesting things in a in a more collaborative environment uh, i think as you know, back to your manufacturing example they're no longer just the revenue manager they're actually making decisions about promotions and marketing and distribution and things like that which is clearly you know something more interesting than just going into your little corner each day and and then crunching a bunch of reports that uh, the gm or the owner is looking for yeah yeah i agree i agree one of the th- obviously cop 26 is happening at the moment sustainability is um 
on everybody's lips and you know we're talking about climate change etc one of the things that was that came out earlier this week but i think it was expedia and a number of other otas were now saying that they were going to prioritize in their searches those hotels that were net zero so those hotels that were net zero will appear at the top in their algorithms and that was part of their approach as a company to promote and help people understand the benefit of making the changes in their organizations to actually um help with the climate change um uh, issues that we all know about how do you think that's going to affect revenue management and you know the rms systems how it's, it's hard to know for sure i mean it's it, it goes it's almost you know back to that reputation thing in many respects i, I suppose we'll, we we will we will we will see my my personal view is also that you can't just leave it up to each individual to to make their change you know we you know you and i will do certain things at a personal level but the, but the fundamental fact is that if you want substantial change and meaningful change it, it it's got to be mandated or delegated you know company behavior personal behavior is will will change slowly if we're not forced to change Look, and, i agree maybe, i agree totally with that yeah maybe maybe expedia's doing this and and I, you know you know all the devils in the detail but if if they are committed to doing this and they're not you know not not trying to it's not just window dressing then 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 it's a, then it's got to be a good thing i think for forcing hotels to actually uh reflect you know if it, if it hurts their bottom line if it hurts their top line um by not making the changes then uh it it'll force them to to think much harder about what they need to be doing and that, you know that's not just hotels that's that's every organization that's every individual you know you've got we've got to create some pain before exactly. you mean for I that. agree totally with that yeah <laughs> i agree it's it, it's the reality i mean no that when i was at think we started looking at the new builds and we we technically on paper made very good changes in the constructions and in the implementations from a climate change perspective but i'll tell you when i was in those meetings it had nothing to do with climate change it everything it do with keeping our costs down yeah you know yeah. and and that that's what drove it more than anything else we just yeah. want to keep our costs down and that made it a more efficient building to run and yeah. operate yeah. so i think that i think i agree what you're saying one of the reasons that i highlighted this the idea of promoting those that are not net zero is i think so there're going to be some people who say well that's a good reason to put our prices up because they're going to say well people are willing to actually pay more if you're net zero and i'm not convinced to that i think people want everybody to be net zero i don't think the consumer I, yeah i don't think the consumer is going to well I, maybe i'm wrong but you know when it's a decision between paying 150 versus 200 i think they'll go for the 150 if even if that hotel is not net zero so you know i think it's yes the visibility that that expedia will generate by being on page 1 is significant and that that'll definitely improve the the the, the hotel's performance but will it perf- improve their performance to the point where they can you know significantly increase price i don't think so i think it's you know when the, the, there will be benefits and they will be able to push price higher because there's increased demand but i think if they go too crazy then they'll start losing you know people will walk away and they'll look for alternatives yeah. so hopefully, I, hopefully not i i think there's going to be a very interesting comparison done by the XP, guys expedia and booking.com because obviously they have they own a lot of otas it's not just the one ota that these guys own and manage i reckon that what will happen is they'll compare their numbers with those otas they own where they're not doing this because i think it's actually quite a dangerous thing to start saying you're going to put the people who are net zero at the top because they have to be like for like and yeah. the reality that i see is that the more you offer as a hotel the harder it is to be net zero so that yeah. means the offer those those hotels that offer a sparse have a very sparse offering for them it would be easy but those who offer a swimming pool a spa yes meals yeah. all the rest of it you're going to find that they if they go down the listings people won't choose it on that OTA but guess what they'll suddenly realize they're doing well on another OTA yeah, but they don't true. have that and I, so it is a quite a dangerous thing so you know not everybody is the same and you know saying 
giving priority to um, into search engines to those that are actually net zero, I think is actually going to be a very interesting thing to see just how long they can sustain that as a business model. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's quite interesting because there's also a story today that came out about brands. And this was actually out of the United States. And it was actually saying, and, and it's almost like, uh, it's almost like, it's almost like, okay, we accept a particular path, but now we have to be wary of taking those steps. And that and the story was that the brands were actually in, instruct some of the big brands were instructing their advertisers not to publish, n- not to promote themselves or promote them alongside you know, any sort of uh, news story to do with climate change or any even. And the reason is that they, they're feeling it's going to have a negative consequence. And they did this during the pandemic as well. They were instructing advertisers not to actually push any of their advertising on any web page that was talking about COVID because they didn't want to be associated with COVID. So, it's, and I think that the COVID one I can understand, you know, in some respects, because obviously, you know, you, you don't want people looking at your wonderful hotel or uh, if you've got a bicycle or a car or whatever, and then thinking, well, actually, you know, how can I, what will happen if other people get in the car, et cetera, and all that yes. kind of stuff. You don't, you, know, you don't want people thinking like that. However, I think there's a realization that maybe some of these brands aren't going to get to net zero quite as quickly as they'd like to. And yeah, just, as a result of that, so it, it kind of makes me think that actually they're going to feel the pressure to get there. And that's why they don't, they're trying to reduce that pressure by not having it becoming the constant theme when discussing, you no, know, when talking to them, which is why they want to stay away from, you know, stories to do with climate change. So, which then made me think about how, the, one of the other elements of this is that corporates, many obviously they haven't been traveling and many agents around the world, global agents around the world are looking at forward to 2022 as the year the corporates come back, which is almost the opposite of what you would think would happen given that one, they're afraid to even be associated with climate change <laughs> articles. And secondly, there's pressure on them to actually become net zero. And I'm just wondering, from a, you know, from your perspective, how, how you, where, where do you think things are going to move? I think back to my earlier point. You know, I think what's coming out of COP now is it's clear that there's an, there are no really tough decisions being made. There's no, you know, we're not, we're not, you know, none of the leaders there are saying we've really got to double down on our efforts and we've got to put meaningful targets in place, meaningful legislation, you know, legislation and, and controls in place to, to drive this down it's it's kind of like yeah we know we've got to do it but but we don't want to commit to to a, a tough period of of uh, commitment and and i think that's true of, of businesses you know unless businesses are really forced to and and see a financial penalty or financial benefit in doing these things they will sort of meander towards the goals but not not sprint towards them and um and yeah i think i think you know just human nature we're all we're all like that you know we 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 have to we want to protect and preserve our our immediate lifestyles even though we know that the consequence of doing so uh, could be severe and 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 you know how many of us have actually made huge changes in our lives in, in exactly. even though we know this is coming and yeah, yeah I, I, I don't know I, I i just think it's 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 governments and businesses that need to really you know commit to it otherwise yeah we're, we're going to all of these all of these changes are, are just going to be window dressing and superficial and really not amount to much in the short term yeah i know i i agree with that especially when you think if you take it of the view that if cop 26 had happened in 2019 when everything was looking really good people would have had a very different view as opposed to now when we've already had a tough two years who was yeah. have another tough two years now, it's really hard. I can I can appreciate where a lot of the pressure is coming from because in coming out of the pandemic, obviously, you know, people are hoping to have some times that they can get back to boom rather than actually meander to it. They want to get there quickly, which obviously, yeah. it kind of as a message, works very much uh, is not aligned to a climate change type of message. But what I think is interesting is that corporates have to take a long view because of the size of the organization. So if you've got a hundred thousand employees or more, 
th those aren't decisions you can take on the spur of the moment. So therefore, the long-term view has to be almost like the standard view of thinking. And HSBC, Zurich Insurance, their CEOs have come out with some big statements saying they're not they're going to reduce travel dramatically. Yeah. Yeah. So as a result of that, if that's the norm with those type of organizations, it may not happen immediately, but very soon those, those ideas will filter through into the very DNA of those organizations. And also at the same time, the pandemic has, has kind of created this environment of we can do our work from home. You know, and that's still a big topic at the moment. You know, people are still trying to work out, can you work from home? Is it good for you to work from home all the time? How does it affect your job prospects in, the, in an organization if you never meet anybody? Now, there's a whole range of things around mental health, et cetera, et cetera. And it just seems to me that maybe the business model of the hotels and hospitality maybe in general needs to start uh, where, where, it's, where it's focused on corporate travel and corporate getting back to what they were before needs to be rethought a little bit. And, it's, yeah. you know, and in terms of revenue management and in terms of working out rates, in the past, how many times have we heard people say, well, the, the corporates are more important. We hold on to that inventory because we might get a corporate deal. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that's always given the highest priority. doesn't matter what you say. You can never release it until the person who's holding on to it has decided, okay, I can't get the deal. So maybe there's some element that's going to come into play where people have got to say, all right, we hold on to some inventory, but we now have to rethink how we determine when that should be opened up. Yeah, well, there's definitely more of a, I can already see this, uh, more of pe people aren't just going on business. You know, whereas previously I was like, you're on a business trip and you're there to have X number of meetings and it's all about those meetings. The, the, the travel that I'm seeing back now, this is happening within a, my own organization, is let's, let's, we need to, because we're working from home and remotely, we need to spend time together with, with people. So let's, almost the catalyst or the driver for the business meeting is, the social aspect, and then if we're going to organize this event to meet you know, without a, a real business reason other than to sort of knowledge share or just collaborate and things like that, who else can I see and which customers can I see? So the reason for travel, I think, is going to change, and probably there'll be fewer trips but more, but, but more people traveling when, when you do organize these events. I also think that big trade shows are going to diminish in, in popularity. I think there's going to be many more micro events, more intimate, specific events tailored for a much more tailored audience uh, rather than sort of just big general trade shows where people, you know, hundreds of thousands pour in for a week or whatever. I think you're going to have much more bespoke specialized events, more, more of them. Um, so I, I don't know, right? It's, 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 it's looking early at days. Ball and early days. Yeah. It's, I, you know, one thing I, 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 I can see happening is as soon as business does improve and as soon as a client says to you, Raj, I want to see you face to face before I sign the deal. Guess what? You'll be there in a shot, you know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I try to predict it actually and try to get there before they've even thought about it. Yeah. So you know, what are the drivers for chat travel and business travel in particular? It's, it's a lot of it is, driven by your clients and, you, and what they want and if uh, you know maybe maybe they will not want to see you as often maybe um that that's quite likely but when they do want to see you you will do what you need to do to 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 accommodate them and um you know if yeah certainly you know building relationships over zoom and stuff is, is tough and i think the face-to-face -face element um is is, is still important yeah, no, I agree with that. I mean, two things come to mind. One is during the pandemic, when the company like Microsoft came out, you know, they're really pushing Teams hard as a competitor to Zoom. The collaborative type applications like Salesforce and, and Slack are another good example. I mean, obviously, they've been bought by Salesforce now. One of the things that was being said uh, by investors in these companies were that they were predicting that organizations, and we're talking go corporates primarily, big organizations, would end up having very different organizations internationally. Mm. So you'd, whereas in the past, you would have to get effectively almost like a person of equivalent of a CEO 
into a country to build up the organization, they were seeing that actually that wouldn't be the case. It would be a question of just getting some good people. And then you just make sure that you can go there as an interim and just bring them together. So that kind of would imply that there'd be lots of short trips. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Lots of right. short trips. But but those short trips won't be as many room nights as the old days. No, no. Well, I, I mean, I remember being quite surprised in previous roles where the, the sales guys would literally, someone would say, can I, can I see you? later in the week and they would you know literally book their flights and, and fly off in the for, for one meeting and then fly back back again and i, d- I don't think that's yeah it'll, it'll return to some extent but not to the extent that we did before and i think people are going to be much more you know do much more due diligence really validate and justify the trip before they, they jump on the plane and, and and fly wherever so i agree the the volume of trips is is and I expect will not not reach the same le- le- level as before. Maybe when they're there, they'll spend more time. So, you know, that CEO going to that remote organization and sort of trying to impart culture and, you know, help create the nucleus of, of an or- their organization remotely will have to spend rather than just, you know, one or two nights there, but maybe three or four nights. So you know, maybe the trips will be longer, but there'll be fewer of them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I just want to say thank you very much. It's been really informative. I hope the listeners have enjoyed the discussion as much as I have. And I really wish you all the very best. And to our listeners, thank you for listening. Thank you very much, Michael. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Raj.